Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfound. Well, today we continue our Easter series, It's Purpose and Promise, with a message entitled Resurrection and the Truth of the Christian Faith. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I came to Christ at age 18. You know, I was raised in a Christian home, and I never missed church, but my doubts about the Christian faith overwhelmed me. I was saved after a near what would have been a fatal car accident, and my consequent fears about entering eternity without forgiveness, well, that led to my conversion. And so I was genuinely converted as the gracious hand of God swept me into an encounter with his son, Jesus. But, and this is the reason I raise the issue here, you know, I didn't come to Christ, for instance, like C.S. Lewis did, by reasoning my way through all the intellectual problems that I had with the faith. I was swept into the kingdom in a most unexpected way, and yet I was still left struggling with some of my doubts. I needed evidence to help me with my primary questions. Was Christianity true? You know, back then, I didn't know how to even address the issues. I mean, what kind of questions should I be asking? And thankfully, back in those days, I had teachers who put me in touch with, you know, reading Francis Schaeffer. I learned from him that if there is no objective basis for the Christian faith, well, Schaefer, who lived in the 1960s and 70s, said, well, we might as well put LSD in our communion cups and join the rest of the world and simply have a trip, which is, of course, a drug-induced euphoria. For without objective evidence, there can be no real faith. You know, that helped me. There needed to be an objective basis for my faith. I had to have a reason to believe, not just deeply held beliefs. But again, where do I begin? I read Josh McDowell in those days and found that he had put a a great deal of emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus. He helped me see that when it was claimed that Jesus rose from the dead in the very geographic area where it was supposed to have happened, one had better be right about those claims because everyone could check them out. And I learned about everything from the rock that was placed over the tomb to the Roman guard that was to ensure that the grave was left undisturbed to the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to the 500 witnesses who all claimed to have seen him at the same time. And I later found out about a skeptic, Frank Morrison, who had examined all the evidence of the resurrection and through that process became a believer. And then he wrote the book, Who Moved the Stone? Well, this is what I'd been looking for. But since my own conversion, I'm overjoyed with how many others have written on that same theme. Tim Keller, in his book, Reasons for God, Belief in the Age of Skepticism, has written, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. You know, Keller's comment is a biblical thought. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14 says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So clearly the Bible itself says that the objective ground for the Christian faith comes from the resurrection. But what do we mean by resurrection? This is a very key question and must be understood before we can even have a meaningful conversation. I mean, consider, for instance, what Deepak Chopra said about it. 
He said, the symbolic language of the crucifixion is the death of the old paradigm. Resurrection is a leap into a whole new way of thinking. Now, before you get enthused about that quote, let's be clear about what Chopra is saying. He's saying Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. It's, it's not an objective historical event. No, no, says Chopra, that didn't happen. Instead, he says it's symbolic language. It's not supposed to be taken literally. Well, now here we have a proposition. Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead or Jesus did actually rise from the dead. I mean, it just has to be one or the other. An event happened or it didn't. And it does absolutely no good here to say, I just believe it in my heart, or to say, you know, I don't believe miracles, so I don't believe that. You see, these are presuppositions. And a presupposition is something that we presuppose to be true before we actually consider the evidence. And there are a great many of people on either side of this debate who already suppose they know what they believe long before the evidence is ever presented. But against that kind of an approach of knowledge, let's start with what the Bible actually says about the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, did the Bible writers, as you know, Deepak Chopra seems to indicate, say that this was all symbolism, or did they say this actually physically and objectively happened? Now, before we go further, let's establish a baseline. I'm reading Peter's words from 2 Peter 1 verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Notice carefully, what what we read about in the Bible was not written by people who had inherited a tradition or a teaching that had been handed down to them. No, No, these were eyewitnesses. Theirs is what historians refer to as primary source documents. Now, that doesn't make it necessarily true, but it does establish a baseline. When we read the New Testament documents, we're reading the accounts of men who purported to have witnessed what they were writing about. Okay, having established that, let's ask ourselves what it is that these men claim to have witnessed. So first, we can establish that in the four gospel accounts that All four claim that Jesus was physically and bodily raised from the dead. All four claim that the tomb where Jesus' body was laid was empty. And all four claim that he was seen alive. And in the case of Matthew and John, those two men claim they actually saw him. In the case of Mark, well, it's likely that he too was an eyewitness. But we do know that the book of Mark was written under the advisement of Peter who did see it. In the case of Luke, Luke is written in a way in which any historian would piece together an account. He interviewed living eyewitnesses as well as having done a definitive review of all written documents from those eyewitnesses. But let's see what the documents actually claim. Remember what we are about to read all deal with the post-resurrection occurrences of Jesus. So consider Matthew 28 verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Luke 24, verse 30 says, When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. I mean, compare that with another appearance in John 21, verse 12. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. On that topic, listen to Acts 10, verse 41. This is Peter speaking. He said, we ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now, to John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. 
On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, there are many more passages, but for our purposes, one more will do. Luke 24, verses 38 to 39, while Luke records Jesus speaking. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So let's be clear. The eyewitnesses claimed to have seen Jesus, to have touched him, and in one case, Thomas was asked to put his hands into Jesus' hands and side and examine the place where the nails had gone and where the spear had sliced into his side. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes mention of one occasion when Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time, and then he adds, most of whom are still alive. Given that to be true, anyone who received the documents of what we now have as 1 Corinthians would know that it was quite possible to interview living witnesses. Now, here's the evidence that we have. First, the people who proclaimed Jesus' resurrection were eyewitnesses, that is, primary witnesses, not passing on hearsay. And with that, we're left with three possible and legitimate conclusions. First, we could conclude that they were lying for the sake of, you know, propagating a new religion. Second, we could conclude that they were mistaken. And there is evidence for perhaps believing that. And it might be that on numerous occasions, the disciples seem to have had difficulty in recognizing Jesus. And this has led to some to assume that there must have been some confusion here. And third, we might conclude by saying, well, it's exactly as they said. Jesus defeated death and rose bodily. But whichever conclusion you come to, and remember, we're not done considering the evidence, but whatever conclusion you come to, one thing is abundantly clear. To argue as some do that the resurrection is symbolic, well, that's just simply not on. So whatever we do with the resurrection of Jesus, let's not obscure the matter with sentimental nonsense. Beginning Monday, April 15th, Dr. Neufeld will present his new two-week Easter series entitled Easter, Its Purpose and Promise. This series focuses on the details of Jesus' weeks leading up to the crucifixion, the crucifixion itself, and the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice and atonement. The second week examines the resurrection, his glorification, and his ultimate victory over sin and death so that all of God's people might receive forgiveness and the promise of eternity. Join us for Easter, its purpose and promise beginning Monday, April 15th through Friday, April 26th. And remember, throughout April, you can still request Dr. Neufeld's recent series on the Gospel of John, Why Follow Jesus, and a bonus copy of the Gospel of John as our free Easter gift to you. To request your free ministry gift or to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. When thinking about the bodily resurrection of Jesus, for that's exactly what's claimed in the Bible, there are some important considerations to help in our study. 
First, it is important that we don't allow for those who say, well, you know, I, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but, but I believe he was raised spiritually. The idea that his dead corpse began to breathe, that he got up in the tomb and rolled away the stone and presented himself alive, well, that seems too far out for some. Again, as I've said before, even if you have a modicum of interest in the truth as, as opposed to what you prefer to believe, listen, it's important that we close the door to the idea of a spiritual resurrection. Look again at the claims that are made in Luke 24, verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So again, let's be clear. Most people and most cultures in human history have believed in life after death. There's nothing unusual or even noteworthy about saying that Jesus rose spiritually. I mean, the Romans believed they would immediately after death go to the Aleutian fields. And people who believe in the transmigration of souls, as do Hindus and Buddhists, believe that our life force will go into another body. The ancient Greeks believed that the spirit would finally be free from the body and that this spiritual resurrection was a higher form of existence. And others simply believe in heaven, whatever they mean by that. But that's not what's claimed in the Bible. You know, I think the framers of the Westminster Confession of Faith really did capture the biblical idea well when they said, at the last day, such believers that are found alive when Christ returns shall not die, but be changed, and all the dead be raised up with the self-same bodies and none other, although with different qualities. I know it's a mouthful, and there's more there than we can address today, but at the very least, it has been on the basis of Bible study, the Christian conviction that Jesus was raised with the human body that he had before, although his human body was transformed with different qualities, and we, following our Lord, will also be bodily raised even as he was. But what do we make of some of those strange occurrences recorded in the Bible? I mean, what do I mean? Well, for one, let's get back to John 21, verse 12. Remember, that's the one incident where Jesus had breakfast with the disciples after his resurrection. The passage says, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. How does that sound strange to you? Well, it should because no one ever made a statement like that before his resurrection. And I can't imagine you've ever had breakfast, let's say, with an acquaintance, and then in the middle of the conversation say, you know, I didn't dare ask him who he was. I knew he was my friend. I mean, immediately on hearing a statement like that, I mean, you'd say, well, something's strange going on here. And clearly that's what we find in the text. Luke 24, verse 16, and we're told of the Emmaus disciples that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Or we might notice in John 20, verses 14 to 16, that initially Mary Magdalene, when she encountered Jesus immediately after his resurrection, also didn't initially recognize him. Now, before we look into that phenomenon, might I say that if these were fabricated accounts, well, they probably wouldn't have mentioned this. I mean, you'd probably say, everyone recognized him right away. And so some have suggested, well, maybe the disciples weren't trying to mislead anyone, but maybe they were mistaken. So what is to explain this phenomenon? I think the explanation is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 53. Now in that chapter, that is in 1 Corinthians 15, 
Paul has been arguing that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. And then from that, he argues that we will all be raised bodily just like him. And then explaining the matter further, verse 53 adds, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. That is to say, it may be that the body is raised from the dead, but the body has to be transformed so that it's no longer subjected to decay and to death. Something has to happen to these bodies of ours to give them the capacity to live for eternity. I think of it this way. (laughs) Have you ever looked at one of those websites which show a Hollywood star when they were young and now what they look like 40 years later? And have you looked at it and does it take your breath away? Is that actually them? Well, oh my. But as you look closer, you say, yeah, I guess that's them all right. Now imagine it the other way. Jesus, the man of sorrows who had suffered stress and indeed suffered the degeneration that is a part of living in this world that is subject to death. Well, now he's raised from the dead and his body is transformed so that it is clothed itself with immortality. Yeah, indeed. Is that him? Ah, yes. Looking more closely, clearly, that's him. Now then, what are our options? Well, clearly, we know that we can't make the eyewitness testimony to make it say that they thought he was spiritually raised. No, no, that's off the table. So what options are we left with? Well, one option is that the eyewitnesses were lying. I mean, after all, they were starting a new religion, and they were proclaiming this new religion in the face of a very hostile Judaism of that day. So this claim that the Jesus followers invented the resurrection as a way to bolster their new religious beliefs, well, that's a well-known critique of the New Testament. So how do we respond to that? Well, let me respond with the words of Chuck Colson. You know, the late Chuck Colson was one of the Watergate conspirators in the Richard Nixon White House. Well, he was sentenced to prison for his role, but he had been converted to the Christian faith. He spent the rest of his life both beginning a prison ministry as well as writing extensively on the Christian faith. And here's what Colson said about the resurrection of Jesus. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? absolutely impossible. Well, at the very least, claiming that they were deceiving others, well, that's highly unlikely. If it was, it was done in front of people who could have investigated the claim they were making at any time. No, no, this is almost an impossible scenario. But what if they were truly mistaken? What if the disciples, so grieved by the death of Jesus, either hallucinated or had a spiritual vision in some way? You know, Lee Strobel was a former investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune, as well as a number of other U.S. newspapers. He was at one time an atheist, but it was the evidence of the resurrection that changed his life. He wrote, I became a Christian because of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus so compelling. Strobel comments on that reality that at one time, more than 500 claimed to have seen the resurrected Jesus at the same time. And he writes, 
I went to a psychologist friend and said, if 500 people claimed to see Jesus after he died, is it possible it was just a hallucination? And he said, hallucinations are an individual event. If 500 people have the same hallucination, that's, that's a bigger miracle than the resurrection, indeed. But I haven't even begun to scratch the surface. The tomb was empty, and we do know that if Jesus had not been raised, the enemies of Jesus, who, as you remember, had attached a Roman guard to watch the tomb, well, they would have dragged the rotting corpse of Jesus down Main Street to prove the disciples false, but they never did. Instead, the tomb was empty. No body was produced. For the rest of their lives, all the apostles continued to consistently tell the same story, even though it cost them all, save one, their lives. What are we left with? I think we're left with the only conclusion we can possibly come to. Let me repeat Tim Keller's statement. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Indeed, 1 Corinthians 15, 14 is right. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and so is your faith. And then forward to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so, if Jesus rose from the dead, and he did, then suddenly we are left with an inescapable conclusion. All that Jesus claimed about himself is in fact true. He is the Son of God who has come into the world. Thanks so much, John. Now, let me take the cynic point of view here for a second. You know, anybody could have said or picked any number. Paul picked 500. They could have picked 1,000. What's going on here? Yeah, the question is, I mean, what if you know, Paul just made up those numbers? What's interesting is that 1 Corinthians is one of the very first books written, so it comes very shortly after, probably less than 20 years after the resurrection. So when you make a claim on the very ground upon which you know everyone saw it there, it's very easy for people then to go back and check. So I guess what I'm saying is it's very hard to say uh, that Jesus did that to the very people who could interview people around that to find out whether or not it's true. So given the context in which that's given, uh, it is, I would argue, impossible to make that kind of a claim and it being untrue. So I think that's how we view all of what the Bible says about the resurrection. It was stated to people who had been there who could investigate it for themselves. So uh, I think that only strengthens and not weakens the case. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Easter, It's Purpose and Promise, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The Gospel of John challenges a new generation to re-examine what it means to live in genuine faith, to live based on the truths Jesus taught. Dr. Neufeld begins volume two of his study on the Gospel of John called, Why Follow Jesus? It calls us to examine our hearts and to ask, why should I follow Jesus? That question drives this ministry, a question that demands an answer. This month, search out that question for yourself as you listen. But also, we invite you to have a copy of Why Follow Jesus on CD for free. And as an added bonus, request a copy in print of the Gospel of John for yourself or to pass on to someone asking questions about Jesus. 
So call today and request Why Follow Jesus? And as an added bonus, receive a copy of the Gospel of John, all for free by simply calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.